4: Learn more at slash papertarian. This is the Greg Peterson
0: experience. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr. On VSIN, the Sports Betting
2: Network.
5: This is the Greg Peterson experience right here on VSIN, the Sports Betting Network, and we've got a tremendous three hours for you as. Just by coming on this show, I think I've done a better job than Nathaniel Hackett tonight, and we're going to look to try to expand on that from here, as in the first hour, we're going to be joined by a pair of great guests. Ben Brown does terrific work over at Pro Football Focus, at Matt Landis does the Props and Ops podcast. On top of that, he's out over there doing some work at Hammers, so they're going to be joining me. We're going to dissect what we got the, this week one, and we're going to turn it forward to week number two, and I think it's really going to be fascinating to talk about Everything that we did wind up seeing in some of these primetime games as well, because being able to spot some things that we see in primetime, not just meltdowns, but just in general, some of the trends, because we remember there have been some very demonstrative totals the last few years in terms of primetime games. That's something to take a look at as well. So we're going to have a great chat in our number one with those two gentlemen, a little bit of roundtable action. Our number two, Daniel Avari does a great job here at v as one of our lead experts, and he does a tremendous job looking at the NBA. We now have the NBA final set. So, we're going to get a little bit of a betting perspective on how to take a look at what is going to be a tremendous series. And then, on top of that, we've also got Jason Weingarten because Danielle's out there in Los Angeles. Jason Weingarten, who joined me in studio on this very show a few days ago, he's also going to be joining me. We're going to get a little bit of LA perspective from them. And then, Jason's going to join me to take a look at the futures market in hour number two and in hour number three. Reem Palmer does great work at the ringer. We're going to get his takeaways from the NFC East. I know he does a great job taking a look at that conference and just try to be able to get some week two bets from him as well. So we've got a jam packed, wonderful three hours to react to what we wound up getting in week one, but more importantly, utilize what we saw in week one, turn it forward, make a bit of money because we saw it a calamity on Monday Night Football. This was a decision that my mother would not wind up making. You do not kick a 64-yard field goal. No f fans or buts about it. And we'll get to kickers in general in a few minutes. Certainly, this missed kick was not on the Denver Broncos gentleman and Mr. McMahon. This was on the fact that, well, you were attempting a 64-yard field goal at 39 seconds, wind up winding down. And It leads to the question, and it's always one of the most difficult questions to answer regardless of the sport. College basketball, the NFL, MLB in terms of managers because we don't call them coaches. We call them managers, but every single sport. How much impact does the coach, manager, insert the name here, have to the line? And I think it's always got to vary a little bit because in every sport it's a tad bit different. There are certain teams like... When it comes to March Madness that you absolutely do not want to bet against because, oh, Tom Izzo, he always finds a way to get his team's peak in March. When it comes to other coaches are a little bit less trustworthy, well, you can feel good about fading them. But I do think that with taking a look at what we got week number one for the Denver Broncos, you got to downgrade them a little bit now. Recency bias is very, very real. And what we wanted seeing was one of the most horrible displays of coaching I've ever seen in my life. No fans or buts about it. This was the debut of Nathaniel Hackett. And if this was also the swan song for Nathaniel Hackett, I wouldn't necessarily blame ownership. I don't think it's going to be the swan song, but not great. That's the only way to put it. Not great, to say the least. But you also have to keep in mind that this was one game. This scenario probably is not going to be popping up in the Denver Broncos next game. It was a little bit of a one-off, and this certainly probably is not going to present itself the next time, and the next time if Mr. Nathaniel Hackett decides, you know what, we're going to attempt another 64-yard field goal while letting 39 seconds elapse, that will be a fireable offense, and he probably will be handed a pink slip before he can even exit the field. That would be tremendous, and right now, if you're taking a look at Week 2, Houston Texans and Denver Broncos, this game was off the board during the game. Right now, I'm seeing most books having this at a 10. DraftKings, it appears, has moved this to a 9.5 with a little bit of juice on the 9.5, and got a battle of two coaches that did not have the world's greatest week One. and Lovey Smith for the Houston Texans. He was very fortunately avoiding the seller in terms of coaching decisions from week one, thanks to our good friend, Mr. Hackett, but not great on that front either. But I do think that it's very fair to knock a team half a point to a point. Now, this is not a case where you completely torpedo a team due to their coach. And when it comes to torpedoing a team due to their coach, I think that it takes a couple of different times. And you could have coaches wind up turning the corner and you could have other coaches go way down in terms of their rankings as well. I will utilize a college basketball example. Penny Hardaway was doing an absolutely terrible job of coaching Memphis in December, early January, last college basketball season. There was the decision made that Imani Bates, he's a little bit injured. We're just going to have him away from the team in general. We are not going to play him. All of a sudden, Memphis wound up playing better. Penny Hardaway was clearly doing a better job of coaching up the team. He wound up progressing up my rankings, and thus Memphis's power ranking, it went up and up and up as they performed better and better, and faith was restored in Penny Hardaway. I think that that is something that you do want to take a look at. Like, for many years, Villanova, prior to them busting through in that 2016 NCAA tournament, Jay Wright was unable to really bust through and was unable to get Villanova their the results that they were desiring in the postseason. They were a tremendous regular season team. They weren't able to get it done. Jay Wright Buster once, and then he winds up being able to get it done a second time in three years. He wound up then progressing up my power rankings of coaches. In a football example, Mike McCarthy. He was white hot when the Packers won the Super Bowl. This is now a little bit over 10 years ago, but you thought, man, Mike McCarthy doing a great job with the Green Bay Packers. As time went along, we realized more and more of how much Aaron Rodgers had to do with that Super Bowl. And now we're starting to question a little bit of Aaron Rodgers at this point as well. But that said, you wind up seeing, all right, Mike McCarthy, things have went a little bit stale, goes down, down, down. I think that it needs to be a little bit more progressive rather than a total stock fall completely off the table, a complete plummet. There are rare exceptions and this would wind up falling into the bucket of rare ex- rare exceptions, and they should be. You shouldn't be having the mindset of everything is the greatest or the worst thing that you've ever seen, unless if it truly really is. This one probably truly is. There's no way around it. I don't know if I've ever seen a worse decision in my life, and if you wind up plummeting a Denver Broncos team that should have, at the very least, had an opportunity to be able to win this game. What happens if... Russell Wilson goes for it on fourth and five. If fifths were fifths, we would all be drunk. We have no idea what would ever happen. Perhaps the Denver Broncos fumble the ball and the Seattle Seahawks run it all the way for a touchdown. Perhaps the Broncos convert. Maybe they get an opportunity to have a 48-yard field goal. We, do not are, we are not privy to that information. We do not wind up living in, I think they call it the multiverse or something like that. We do not wind up living there. We live on planet Earth instead. We cannot simulate that result. Well, we can simulate that result, but we don't know what would happen with the proper decision being made and the proper decision keeping it in Russell Wilson's hands. And or, I mean, as bad as it sounds, a punt would have been a better decision there than going for it on fourth and five. I just cannot believe you go for a 64-yard field goal, but you do have to keep that in mind. and as we're talking about the 64-yard field goal, one of the big takeaways I had from week one, kickers did not wind up doing great work in prime time, and I'm begging the question, and I'm talking about how to evaluate coaches, how much they should mean to a point spread, how much they should mean to your power rankings. I do think that kickers sometimes get a little bit overlooked, and a reason why I like the Baltimore Ravens coming into the 2022 season was because they've got the best kicker in the NFL, Justin Tucker. We had Wes Reynolds on the show just before Mind. He and Femio Babefe do an absolutely terrific job with VEASAN Live Bet tonight. He threw out the set that in the last 29 field goal attempts from north of 63 yards, kickers are 2-29. Guess he's one of those guys that wound up banging through one of those field goals? Granted, in a dome in the city of Detroit, but Justin Tucker. I do think that when handicapping NFL games, it should mean something. I was... Going through my mind, since I'm a little bit more of a college basketball handicapper myself, can you wind up drawing parallels to field goal kicking and free throw shooting at the end of games? Because how many times haven't you had it where a team is up by six points, you need them to cover a seven-point spread, and then there's, I hate to do this, but absolutely love the guy while he was at St. Louis for his low post play. Absolutely hated his free throw shooting. Here's Hassan French going to the free throw line who shoots, 60, or shoots 35% at the free throw line and your bet is relying upon him. Sometimes you find that in that scenario with kickers. It's a tie game. You're laying two points. You're laying two and a half. You're able to go down the list of reasons why you need the kicker to be able to bang through a insert 45, 47, 50-yard field goal, and guy winds up shanking it, and with free throw shooting as well. What I think is the most, I guess you call it, the best way to be able to compare the two, and the way that they're the most similar is that Free throw shooting, you're able to take a look at season-by-season results, and when it comes to that moment, guys do wind up shrinking under the circumstances, and I think a prime example of this was the Cincinnati Bengals. Someone like McPherson. He was tremendous for the Cincinnati Bengals in that playoff run to lead the Cincinnati Bengals to the Super Bowl. In week one, he was about as cold as ice and wound up being an albatross or the Cincinnati Bengals, and you are going to find that from time to time. You could stick all the research humanly possible into those big-time situations with things like free-throw shooting, things like field goal kicking, and it's not going to make a darn difference because the moment is big, guy winds up choking under it, but I do think that it is very important to try to gauge that and try to put yourself in the best spot humanly possible, and it's not something that should be overlooked. Do our... Gentlemen that are joining me here in a second agree as Matt Landis. He does a great job with props and ops podcast. Ben Brown does amazing work at pro football focus. They're going to be joining me next. We're going to react to what we wind up seeing in week one and turn it forward. Week two of the NFL season next on the Greg Peterson experience on Beeson. The Esports Bank Network. Day, a little bit more chill with some extra cash. Play for free during the college football season with the Coors Light College Football Pick'em. Join 15 free-to-play pools for your shot at $5,000 in weekly prizes. Head on over to DraftKings.com slash Coors Light Pick'em now to join in on the action. Coors Light, perfect shot of refreshment. 21 years or older terms and conditions and other eligibility restrictions they do apply. See DraftKings.com for details and per usual Please do drink responsibly as we're back here on the Greg Peterson Experience on Visa and the Sports Bank Network. Great to be joined by our guests as we've got Ben Brown, who does great work at Pro Football Focus, and Matt Landis. He does a Props and Ops podcast, and along with that, he's over at the Hammer HQ, so congratulations to him. And we've got our panel here, and we're going to first lead off with you, Ben, on this, because one of the biggest takeaways I had from week one of the NFL season is kickers, There were some of them that they saved you. There were many of them that you probably looked at them and you probably were feeling pretty salty about them. But when it comes to the way that you wind up evaluating teams, the way that you wind up handicapping, how do you wind up factoring in four kickers? Because it made a world of difference here in week number one.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think I think it's something I need to consider more after week one. Right. It's something that um, I would say that there is like a certain level of high replacement level. There's obviously a barrier of entry to being an NFL kicker. And I think that, you know, a lot of guys get to that point if they're, you know, struggling to uh, go through the very basics of it, they're obviously going to get cut. But I do think there are some outliers on the other side, guys like Justin Tucker, who you can definitely probably fold in some understanding of they're going to be able to actually make that kick. Now, the problem is, I would probably say, you know, a guy like Evan McPherson, who was, you know, absolutely stone cold nails in the playoffs last year, would also probably be at least close to that Justin Tucker type tier. And and, and he kind of, you know, uh, didn't necessarily, it wasn't probably his fault. It was more so, you know, the replacement level long snapper that was affecting the entire transition but I think when you take all three of those things into account both the long snapper the holder and the place kicker uh there is some element of randomness and there is probably something that you can take away that's at least predictive for how they're going to perform in some of these endgame situations
5: I agree and then we are going to pose this one to you as well Matt when it comes to evaluating teams how much do you factor in kickers and does it maybe have a little bit more importance after what we got in week one
6: And you know the kicker is an important position to me. I mean, I feel like after watching week one, 50 is the new 40 when it comes to kicking field goals. We saw the Browns walk off on a 58-yarder. Steelers doing the same from 53. Harrison Butker came out on one leg and kicked a 54-yarder at the end of the first half for the Chiefs. His week two status will be worth monitoring. I mean, I saw Dustin Hopkins for the Chargers miss one from 49, and that almost grew pivotal in a game that was probably closer than it should have been for the Chargers against the Raiders. So yeah, when it seems like it's automatic from just about any distance these days, except for maybe 64 yards, if we can tell Nathaniel Hackett to let his offense stay on the field, definitely becoming a bigger and bigger part of the game from pretty deep range.
5: And one of the the games that we've talked about quite a bit in terms of this kicker conversation, that is the Bengals and the Steelers game, which... I felt like was one of the more harebrained games we got in week one. Certainly what we just witnessed from Seahawks versus Broncos. That ranks up as well, but I'll go back to you on this one, Ben. How much do you wind up being able to upgrade the Pittsburgh Steelers, if anything at all, after their win against the Cincinnati Bengals? And how much do you downgrade the Bengals? Because there are some games in which... A team in a losing effort, I feel like you can actually upgrade them a little bit. Meanwhile, a team that winds up winning, sometimes you wind up downgrading them as a result. But I feel like this is one of these games where you almost wind up downgrading the Cincinnati Bengals quite a bit. And despite the fact that the Steelers pull off the upset, I don't know if I'm willing to upgrade them too much due to the win.
2: Yeah, definitely. I would agree with you. I do think, you know, they obviously took advantage of some poor decision-making from Joe Burrow's side but uh, and, and turning that into the pick six. But offensively, uh, it still is kind of a disaster, right? And I do think that Mitch Trubisky, you know, got over his uh, completion prop, I think, in overtime. It went from like 20.5 up to 21. Uh, but still only threw for 194 yards it was maybe, uh, you know, the... Uh, the assumed game manager type quarterback. And I think that uh, with Najee Harris hurt, you know, the, the wide receiver unit still kind of seems to be fluctuating with injuries, those sorts of things. They have, you know, by far, I would say still the worst offensive line in the NFL. Uh, Even with the win, it's really hard to see, uh, you know, them actually gaining ground from a power ratings perspective. And I, I, you know, I I was probably higher on the Cincinnati Bengals in general uh, heading into the season. I do think that, you know, outside of the Joe Burrow uh, turnover situation, some really poor decisions. I do think that they were actually really effective moving the football. I do think that. If they had T. Higgins in that particular matchup, uh, it maybe would have been a different story, and they were still able to at least have the opportunities to win that game at the end. So I'm not really downgrading them too drastically, and I think that, you know, given the line movement for where they're at in Dallas in Week 2, uh, they are a team that I think that the betting market is still backing and buying into, I would say, heading out, heading out of this matchup.
5: And Matt, we'll go to you on this one as well. How do you wind up viewing both the Bengals and the Pittsburgh Steelers after what we got in Week 1? Because I do think... In terms of takeaways from week one and really in any game and in any sort of scenario, there are certain circumstances where I feel like you can downgrade a winning team, you can wind up upgrading a losing team if it winds up being a great effort, like, for example, Notre Dame versus Ohio State, to use a little bit of a college football reference, but... I do think that this was a very strange game, to say the least, and for the Cincinnati Bengals, wasn't necessarily too impressed by them, but even with the win, I don't think that the Pittsburgh Steelers deserves a leg up, especially if that T.J. Watt injury turns out to be even worse than it looks, and it looks pretty bad.
6: Yeah, Greg, I think it's interesting that you use a college football parallel when seeing this up, because between the drama and the sometimes straight-up amateur-looking level of play, It almost felt like that's what we were watching at times between the Steelers and the Bengals yesterday. And this is a case where I'm almost tempted to downgrade the touchdown underdog that won the game outright, perhaps a touch more than the touchdown favorite that lost that game outright. The Steelers then touched on the injuries, both to Watt and to Harris, also going plus five on turnovers, including a pick six. I mean, for them to be not winning that game comfortably is an indictment on some level. And if we look at the Bengals, I know that Burrow made some poor decisions, as has been mentioned, but I do want to point out that one of those interceptions was actually a more favorable result for Cincinnati than an incompletion. There was a fourth down late in the game where a pass that could have fallen incomplete. Instead, was picked off, and it was a 13-yard swing and field position, so not all interceptions created equal. The Bengals won first down 32-13. to They won yards per play. I am a bit concerned that they allowed seven sacks. That's a recurring theme from last year, even during the Bengals' playoff run. They've got to protect Burrow. Perhaps Burrow's got to get rid of the ball a bit sooner. We thought the revamped offensive line might show a little bit better week one. But overall, my takeaway from this game was to take a bit of a flyer on the Bengals to win the AFC North at plus 290. I'm seeing that in the regulated market, as good as 3-1 to offshore. Yes, they lost this game. They're down in the standings by a game to Pittsburgh, as well as to Baltimore and to Cleveland in that division. But they caught a big break now facing Cooper Rush instead of Dak Prescott at quarterback in Week 2. The Ravens still can't escape the injury bug. We got left tackle Jalon James suffering a season-ending Achilles injury. If Ronnie Stanley can't be on the field, that could prove costly from a depth standpoint. Defensively, Baltimore also losing Kyle Fuller, their cornerback, to an ACL injury. I just feel like if the Bengals can make a PAT or an even shorter field goal in overtime yesterday, their odds still win the division probably closer to plus 200. And if we look at break-even probabilities really quickly here, plus 290, the current number, implies a 25.6 break-even percentage. At plus 200 for Cincinnati, which I think would be a more fair representation, you're getting a 33.3% break-even percentage. I feel like that delta leaves enough value to take a flyer on the Bengals to rebound from a week one defeat.
5: I felt like it was a little bit misleading to take a look at the box scores. so I'm glad that you wound up bringing up that strange interception that we did wind up seeing that actually might be a little bit favorable for the Cincinnati Bengals. And I know that there was another box score that you found to be quite strange as well. That would be the San Francisco 49ers versus the Chicago Bears game. For one, that game was played out there in a monsoon. We are hearing a lot of hot takes with the San Francisco 49ers quarterback situation. But what were some of your takeaways Matt, from what we got in 49ers versus the Bears because the Bears, they wind up getting a win. No doubt, this is not one of these ordeals where we wind up downgrading the winning team more than the losing team, but I did think that it was a very strange game in general and has caused, certainly, for a lot of hot takes.
6: Yeah, I think we can take this one with a hefty grain of salt. A lot has been made about the weather, and even when it wasn't looking like a monsoon, the field conditions never really recovered in the middle of the game for a while there. I think a big takeaway, the offenses for both teams, not that bad moving forward. The defense is not as good as they looked in such favorable conditions for defense yesterday at Soldier Field. So just at first glance, I'd be inclined to look toward overs for the 49ers and Bears full game totals, team totals, and some player props this week. Not going to follow it blind, but I think we want to be careful about downgrading the offenses too much or upgrading the defenses too much. And I know it was a brutal loss for the Niners as a heavy favorite, one of many teams that did in a lot of circus survivor contestants right out of the gates. But the Niners plus 1.3 yards per play, only one for three in the red zone compared to two for two for the Bears. Niners lose a turnover battle, also commit nine more penalties for 75 more yards. When we look at what I find to be predictive moving forward, again, the Niners are 0-1. That matters. But I think that their level of play will be much better moving forward than what we saw yesterday in Chicago.
5: I think so as well. And I think that we need to pick this topic up on the other side, right here on the Greg Peterson Experience on VSIN, the Sports Betting Network.
0: You're experiencing Hoops Peterson himself on VSIN, the Sports Betting Network.
5: Kick off the football season with Bet Rivers Online Sportsbook. Bet Rivers is your go to sportsbook for every line, boost, and special. Lace them up for this week in the NFL and Bet Rivers Parlay Insurance and Touchdown Insurance every single Sunday, all season long. Build a parlay of at least four legs, and if it loses, get your stake back with a free bet of up to $25. Wager on any player to score a touchdown on Sunday Night Football and you get your money back as a free bet if they score at any time. Head on over to BetRivers.com or download the Bet BetRivers app. It's a whole new game as we're back here on the Greg Peterson Experience on Visa the Esports Bank Network. Being rejoined by Ben Brown, who does great work at Pro Football Focus and Matt Landis, newest edition of The Hammer, and does great work with the Props and Ops podcast. And Ben, we were taking a look back at week one in segment number one. Now let's turn it forward to week two and We got done chatting about the San Francisco 49ers and no doubt of conversation right now is the Seattle Seahawks, what they did on Monday Night Football. And when you take a look at the line, finding it anywhere between 8.5 and and 9, opening up with the San Francisco 49ers being a favorite, mostly 8.5. At this point, we've seen a slight move, but how do you gauge week number two? Because no question, the Seattle Seahawks were outgunned in terms of the talent on the field, and the San Francisco 49ers, they should be a little bit superior to the Seattle Seahawks, but certainly a strange ordeal, and I do think that this is going to be one of the harder games to handicap for this week to slate.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's two teams. It's really hard to draw uh, conclusions on what they did in week one. Obviously, really emotional game and victory for Seattle in Seattle taking on, uh, you know, Russell Wilson. But I do think, you know, division rival in this particular matchup, I don't really want to downgrade the San Francisco 49ers for losing to Chicago. I also think Uh, You know, some of the comments about Trey Lance's performance are probably just a little bit overstated given the conditions. My one concern with them uh, is really like the interior of their offensive line. We know their tackles are really good, but uh, some of that pressure up the middle, Trey Lance is athletic enough to kind of escape some of it, but when he's constantly facing that, you know, play in and play out, uh, it makes for a really difficult situation. So I think that, you know, Geno Smith has probably been, uh, you know, he was obviously undervalued tonight. I think he's probably going to be undervalued a little bit going forward uh, in the betting market. He obviously uh, has found his, I would say, you know, mojo or something else in Seattle being, uh, you know, you know, being under Pete Carroll. So I kind of lean in the Seattle Seahawks direction. I think that, uh, you know, they still have playmakers at the out- at the wide receiver position. Uh, definitely are distributing the ball quite a bit. Have a, you know, legitimate number one running back in Rashad Penny. So we'll see how the Jamal Adams injury breaks out. If that's as serious as it is, it is obviously going to impact their secondary. But I-, I think they got enough corners in place to at least you know, slow down the 49ers deep ball. And if they can do that, get their run fits in place, uh, the 49ers are gonna have a tough time running the football on them. So I lean Seattle plus eight and a half here. I think uh I'm riding the I'm riding the Pete Carroll bandwagon here early on in the season.
5: No question, Matt, I know that you're someone that does a great job in terms of teasers as well. And what I think is fascinating when it comes to this game as well is that the total is so low. We're seeing it right in that neighborhood about forty two in a lot of spots. And when you've got a low total and a spread that is north of a touchdown, I do think that that lends itself a little bit better for the underdog. And also, I think that this could be an interesting game from a teaser's perspective as well, because at the eight and a half like we have right now, if you do a normal six-point teaser, you're able to get through both the seven and the three. So I think that this is a game of a lot of fascination, not just from the straight-up spread perspective, but perhaps being able to tease it down as well.
6: Yeah, you're reading my mind on that, Greg. If I had to just make a wager, maybe gun to my head with no big right now at eight and a half, I would probably be inclined to go head to head with Ben and side with San Francisco. But I don't have to when the teaser's an option and plenty of other candidates to pair the Niners with in a teaser on the week two card. I just think that looking at Seattle and I, I was thrilled to see them win, getting, you know, the Chargers AFC West Foe a loss in a game that shouldn't have been a loss for Denver. Um, Seattle minus 1.6 yards per play. They win the turnover battle. They see Denver go over four in the red zone, including back-to-back drives with lost fumbles inside the one. I just don't see how that's sustainable. So I want to give credit where it's due to Seattle for showing up and putting forth a good effort tonight. Moving forward, I feel like especially if we give the Niners Kittle back in the fold, I think that they can impose their will and just finish drives in a way that Denver wasn't able to do tonight. But like you said, if there's the opportunity to kind of forget about the full game point spread a little bit and just do little more than win outright with a teaser ticket on the Niners, that would be my optimal plan of attack at this
5: stage. And Matt, when it comes to other games that you might be viewing from a teaser perspective, who are a few others that might wind up coming to mind? Because we do have a few games in which you've got six and seven point spreads. And now we're seeing a few more games in which you're seeing like the Bills be a 10 point favorite. The Denver Broncos are now a 10 point favorite as well. And those seem to be getting up a little bit too lofty to be in teaser range.
6: Yeah, when it comes to some heavy favorites this week, if we see a few games come a tick down from ten to nine and a half, I'm looking at Denver, Buffalo, Green Bay, possibly some opportunities for seven point teasers, good up to a price point of minus one forty. And that way we would still be crossing down through the seven and three with some of these big favorites. And minus one forty sounds cheap for a teaser. But compare that to a Moneyline Parlay, you'd be laying a lot more big on any combination of Denver, Green Bay, and Buffalo, and you're really just conceding the one and the two. So it's possible the Moneyline Parlay could land where the teaser wouldn't, should there be a one or two point win. But for the cheaper price, minus 140 and a seven point teaser, I like looking that way if we see a couple of those games tick down to nine and a half. Otherwise, it's a really friendly teaser slate for underdogs as well where available. Some books, both regulated and offshore, currently posting plus one and a half for the Steelers hosting the Patriots. And I just feel like seeing some market makers in the regulated and offshore market hanging pick them on this game. It's almost like teasing Pittsburgh up to plus seven and a half in a six point teaser could be the equivalent to getting seven and a half points for the price of six. And in a game with a low total question marks about Mac Jones and his back injury, the Steelers have a lot of appeal where they're available at plus plus one and a half. And two games much more widely available looking at underdogs, Washington plus eight and a half to Detroit. Kind of feel like that Lions game yesterday was eerily familiar to what we saw from them week one, rising from the dead against San Francisco at home to make a blowout look a lot closer than it was cosmetically on the scoreboard. The Lions still have Jared Goff. They've still got a bad defense. Long term, there's a lot to like about them, but I think there's a ceiling as to how far they can pull away from anybody with their current roster. So I like Washington to keep that one competitive. And then maybe the game of the week, the Vikings and the Eagles on Monday Night Football. Eagles have come down from plus three, but now at about plus one and a half for Minnesota, you could tease them up through the seven. This game has a high total, so that's a bit of a fly in the ointment. But I do see these as pretty evenly matched teams. And with Minnesota, now with Kevin O'Connell on the sidelines, calling a much more optimal team using the passing game much more efficiently, like the Vikings to hang close with the Eagles as well, if not win it outright.
5: And here's a line that has moved quite a bit. I'll pose this one to you, Ben, because we knew that this line was going to move. We didn't know how far it was because there's a lot of injury question marks when it comes to week two. We know one guy that is not going to be playing in week two. That would be our good friend, Dak Prescott. He winds up going out of Sunday Night Football towards back half of the game. It is going to be Cooper Rush as of right now under center unless of the Dallas Cowboys wind up making some big giant move. And even if they do, probably not going to have that quarterback up to snuff for this game. As a result, the Cincinnati Bengals, who, if you took a look at numbers prior to Sunday Night Football, the Dallas Cowboys, a lot of spots, they were two-point favorite. Now they're a full touchdown underdog. Did you feel like this was a warranted move, Ben, or do you think this might have went just a little bit too far?
2: Yeah, I think Dak would probably have worth around like six and a half you know, points above like a replacement level player. So uh, if you're looking at, you know, the minus two and a half, what it was at last week versus now, it might be a little bit overstated. Uh, I do think that, you know, Cincinnati in general, uh, I, I said it earlier, but I do I do have to say it again. I do think they are, you know, a little bit undervalued in the betting market. I do still think, you know, they are a legitimate contender in the AFC. So maybe that's part of the reason why uh, you see a little bit of an outsized move, but uh, I, I, I can't get behind... A, the completely uninspiring performance that Dallas had, even with Dak Prescott at quarterback. So I think given the state of their offensive line, given the state of their wide receiver unit, uh, there's just no conceivable way uh, that I would really want to back them at anything, you know, uh, anything less than a touchdown differential. So if it's minus seven, uh, I think Cincinnati is really the only play for me from that, from my perspective.
5: And Matt, we've got about 60 seconds. What's your take on Bengals versus Cowboys for week two with the Bengals clocking in now as a touchdown favorite?
6: You know, my angle, not directly involving either of these teams, but playing off of the Dak Prescott news, I've taken a small flyer on the Eagles to win the NFC East at minus 150 after yesterday's results. I think we saw a misleading final. The Eagles played much better than a three-point margin of victory would imply against Detroit. The Cowboys, without Dak Prescott for a while, hard not to think they're just out of the running at this stage. Washington, they won yesterday, but that was a coin flip game against Jacksonville. And speaking of coin flip games, if the Giants miss a two-point conversion or the Titans can make a field goal like seemingly every other team in the league to end a game then the Giants are 0-1, I just think the Eagles, even at minus 150, have a smidge of value to go ahead and win this division.
5: Yep, I do not want to be investing in the New York Giants along with the Washington Commanders to win the division. And without Dak Prescott, it's a world of hurt for the Dallas Cowboys. So. You're reading my mind there, and Matt Landis, you do a great job. And by the way, congrats on joining the Hammer to you and Ben Brown over at Pro Football Focus. Both of you guys do amazing work. Thank you so much for joining me tonight.
6: Thanks, Greg. Looking forward to next week. Perfect. Thanks, Greg.
5: Great to get those gentlemen on, and we had a great week one of the NFL season. Now for Tuesday, let's take a look at a little bit of baseball next right here on v the Sports Bank Network. Start your football season on the right foot by subscribing to VSIN Pro. Get full access to everything that we do, including our daily picks at a glance, which recaps all the top plays made by VEASAN hosts and guests 24-7 video season prep, which includes our weekly college and pro football matchup guides covering every single game along the way, pro tips like our exclusive betting splits, and pro tips. Updated every hour with actionable insights to up your sports betting game. Sign up for our discounted football special right now and get vison Pro access to everything that we do now through the Super Bowl for just $175 or save 50% off the monthly price with an annual subscription. And bet smarter all year long. Go to VEASAN.com slash subscribe for all of your options and become a part of the Sports Betting Network as we're back here on the Greg Peterson Experience on VEASAN, the Sports Betting Network. And speaking of those pro tips, we want to do in the read, so... Makes it nice and easy. Our pro tip for this hour, we were mentioning it with Matt Landis. Teasing through as many key numbers maximizes these teasers as best as possible. We were talking about it with the 8.5 point spread that is currently up on the board in most books in terms of the Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers game. The reason why you want to do that is because on your normal 6-point teaser, and once again, check your juice on the teasers. There are more and more books that they're still offering teasers, but the minus 120, like you'd like to see, now it's becoming a little bit closer to minus 130. Sometimes northward, it really does wind up making a difference at the end of the day. You wind up going through because with minus 110 juice, 52.3% is what you need to hit in order to wind up breaking even. Anything above that, you're profitable. Anything below that, you're not so profitable. Well, the higher the juice winds are coming, the higher that break-even number winds are coming, so... Do be mindful of that, but teasing through as many key numbers as possible, that is big because right now we're seeing quite a few games that are landing on right about nine and a half, ten-ish. You want to see those numbers come down to eight and a half, not because the difference between eight and a half and nine and a half in terms of the full spread itself is necessarily so critical. And it sometimes can be. You'd rather be laying eight and a half than nine and a half, but you don't want you don't need to move heaven and earth for that as opposed to say like two and a half to three on a game that is toggling in that neighborhood, but it is very big from a teaser's perspective. So did wind up, want to give a little bit of lip service there. It's Matt Landis, who does a great job with the props and ops podcast along with the hammer. He was joining me in the last segment along with Ben Brown of pro football focus. So did want to give a little bit of just the spotlight in terms of those of you guys that do like teasers. And it was a little bit of a rough week for teasers, especially if you want to take in the Denver Broncos, so some prayers to you there. Nathaniel Hackett owes you some sort of beverage with his big giant contract for that one. So, not great on that front. So, we'll try to be able to get back some of those units via the baseball slate as we've got a great day of baseball for Tuesday. Every game, or every team is in play, and we've got 17 total games. We've got a pair of doubleheaders, and it's going to be tough to give you too much on these doubleheaders since most books have these games off the board, and on that matter, game two of both of these doubleheaders have TBD pitchers, so that causes for a little bit of a calamity, but Let's take a look at an underdog. I like for Tuesdays. We're going to be dating the Dodgers. 961, 962 on the board. The Arizona Diamondbacks. Playoffs to the LA Dodgers with Clayton Kershaw going for the Dodgers and Merrill Kelly. He takes a bump for Arizona. In Arizona, between a plus 170 to a plus 175 underdog, seeing a straight plus 180 out there. Between minus 190 and minus $2, that is the number on LA. Most books have an eight on this total. You're going to find a few straight seven halves on the seven and a half is going to have heavy juice on the over end. The Dodgers haven't been great in Clayton Kershaw's recent starts. They're 6-6 six six in his last 12, and Merrill Kelly has been tremendous all season long. Now, his worst start of the season did come against the LA Dodgers a few months ago at Dodgers Stadium, but Merrill Kelly, other than the one hiccup that he did wind up having at Dodgers Stadium, I believe that that was in June he had that start, but overall for the season, he's been rather remarkable. Not necessarily getting a ton of strikeouts, 7.7 strikeouts per nine innings, on par with what he's done for the entirety of his career, but he's done a nice job with walks, 2.5 walks per nine innings, and he's been very consistent home to road. It used to be where Merrill Kelly, he would have a ERA right around a point and a half lower when he was at home rather than on the road. Now he's been a steady Eddie guy. Home ERA. Hovers right in the neighborhood about a 292-295 on the road. That is as split as it gets, giving up 0.7 home runs per nine innings. Challenge for him going up against this L.A. Dodgers bunch, which Mookie Betts has slugged out 33 home runs. In my opinion, he deserves a lot of recognition for MVP at this point. He has been that good for this L.A. Dodgers team because he not only does that, he does that at the leadoff spot. He feels his position really well. There's a bunch of superlatives that you can use for Mookie Betts, but on top of that, he's got a lot of lineup protection as well as Will Smith, Trey Turner, Freddie Freeman, all between 19 and 21 home runs. All these guys have at least a 350 on base with Turner and Freeman both hitting above a 300. They have been spectacular. Heck, Joy Gallo has been able to give the team home runs, so I will say he, Cody Bellinger, need to pick it up a little bit in terms of the batting average, but by and large, L.A. Dodgers team that has been able to slug it out, and for the Arizona Diamondbacks, has been intriguing to watch their offense because the batting average is starting to improve. Jake McCarthy, young player for this team, he's been hitting above a 300, and it's been... A guy in Stone Garrett who is really stepped up. He's hitting above a 350. He has been a nice find for this Arizona Diamondbacks team. And then Christian Walker and Dalton Varshow, a combined 56 home runs between these two. They're both hitting about 240 for the season, but Walker post All Star break has been hitting well above a 250. He's ramped things up on that front, but with the Arizona Diamondbacks, they get in the neighborhood about 0.85, 0.9 home runs per game at home. On the road, this actually goes up to 1.35. There has not been a lot of home runs hit by either they nor their opponents at Arizona this season, which I think is a little bit confusing. And the big thing with Merrill Kelly is providing length. If there is one big issue that you have with the Arizona Diamondbacks right now, it is this bullpen. Joe Bantiply has been able to supply a sub-three ERA. you have had Ian Kennedy be able to deliver some okay innings, but when you get into guys like Luis Frias, Mark Melanson, when he was out there, Noe Ramirez, I believe he is now on the injured list, but you're able to go down the line of guys for the Diamondbacks, posting up a north of 450 ERA. It's not great. Kevin Ginkle, there's another one. so And has not been tremendous. And for the LA Dodgers, right now, one of their biggest weaknesses is the fact that Craig Kimbrell cannot be trusted late in games. Now, the unsung heroes have been tremendous for this team. Evan Phillips, Caleb Ferguson, Alex Vasilla posting up sub-3 ERAs. And this is a Dodgers bunch that they rank number one in the National League in terms of bullpen ERA, so they've got a little bit of a leg up on that front end. For Clayton Kershaw, he's made a few starts since coming off the injured list and has been relatively solid since coming off the injured list, a sub-3 ERA, giving up three walks in his last two starts, so not too bad in that category. But with the LA Dodgers, also keep in mind, this team pretty much has everything sewn up. They are going to be winning the National League West unless if the San Diego Padres channel their inner 2021 St. Louis Cardinals and run off some sort of a 17-game win streak, and the L.A. Dodgers, they decide to wind up throwing things into the toilet bowl, which I do not foresee that coming, but with Clean Kershaw, they the L.A. Dodgers, they want him to be as healthy as humanly possible in October. This is not a game of which they are going to risk life or death when it comes to Clayton Kershaw, so do keep that in the back of your mind, so we might wind up seeing a little bit of a reduced workload for Clayton Kershaw until the playoffs do wind up starting, because a big undoing of the LA Dodgers just last season was all the injuries that they had to their pitching. Now, keep in mind, much of that self-inflicted by David Robertson, that was one of the most bone-headed decisions I have ever seen, not quite on par with our good friend Nathaniel Hackett, but having Julio Rios coming out of the bullpen in that series against the Atlanta Braves was not great. And then trying to have them start, they did the same with Max Scherzer, which a little bit more understandable trying to close out a series. But of note, if you are taking a look at some MLB futures at this point, because the Dodgers have found ways time and time again to not be able to get the job done. And I think that this could be another game in which they do not get the job done. Merrill Kelly has been undervalued. He's been able to give good starts both at home and on the road all season long. I think that this is a little bit too lofty of a number. I'm going to be willing to take a shot on the ears on the Diamondbacks, and the Diamondbacks have been doing a solid job I'll be able to supply some offense. I still think that the Dodgers they are going to be able to crank out a few runs, but I've got so much respect for what Merrill Kelly has done this season. I'm going to be taking a look at an under, set my total at a 7.1, and in this circumstance, anything of a plus 155 or greater, which we're seeing Across all books, I'm going to be willing to take that plus price. I'm going to be getting upon my DK Nation pick in hour number two. So that's going to be coming up in a few minutes. But you are going to be noticing that there are some games that are off the board in the MOB. You can expect a lot of these games to come up right around 4, 5 a.m. Pacific time. If you're out there on the East Coast, more like 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, this is depending upon getting starting pitchers. Like we've got two double headers that are going to be going down on Tuesday one between the Pirates and the Reds, and one between the Blue Jays, and the Rays. Game two, probably not going to be posted up because those starters, they're going to be determined most likely towards back half of the day, but something like the Milwaukee Brewers and and St. Louis Cardinals with Jordan Montgomery going for the Cardinals, Matt Bush going in a bullpen game for the Milwaukee Brewers. This is going to be hung up in the AM, so just a little bit of a pointer there, and then game one of those doubleheaders, that is going to be up in the AM as well, but what is available and what is going to be coming up on the other side. My DK Nation pick for the MLB slate, as we got a lot of MOB coming up in hour number two of the Great Peterson Experience, a little WNBA, and a little NFL chatter. So we've got a little bit of everything going on next on the Great Peterson Experience on VSIN, the Sports Betting Network.
3: Check out the VSIN store for the latest and greatest in sports betting fashion. We have more than 40 shirt designs, including our most popular one. Cash and tickets is what it's all about. You'll find decent shirts and hats for any occasion. And they're all made to order, so you can all made to order, so you can all made to order, so you can all
0: made to order. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field.
3: from hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save fifty dollars on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK System sets through June 16, twenty four. See participating retailer for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?"
4: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office.